What does Jesus want His church to be? What does Jesus want our church to be? Now, there are many books and blogs written every day trying to answer this question about what a church ought to be. There are many leadership podcasts uh, released every day trying to answer this question. And while most of the books and the blogs and the podcasts give potential answers and often or usually good answers, there is one often overlooked answer that we find in God's Word. Open your Bible to Mark 11, verse 15 is where we're going to start. should be on page 772 in your pew Bibles. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark 11 and 15 says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple area, and began to drive out those who were selling and buying on the temple grounds. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple grounds. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The title of the message tonight is Praying for the Church. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. We are thankful for your grace and your goodness. We are thankful that Calvary covers it all. Father, I am beyond grateful that my past and my sins are all taken away. Father, sometimes the enemy brings up my past. Lord, I would despair and condemnation if I was not certain of what Jesus had done for me on the cross. I rejoice in that, Lord. Father, tonight we look at this passage and, Father, we want to know how to be a praying church. We want to know how to be the church that you want us to be. So open our minds and open our hearts to that tonight. Or as we take time in this service to pray, meet with us in prayer, speak to our hearts, hear our prayers and answer them in accordance with your good and your perfect will. Show us, Father, that you are the great and the awesome God who hears our prayers and cares about what's going on in our lives. Fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to speak your words and your ways for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now the passage, it it comes soon after Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem. And we're likely familiar with the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. But we're really going to focus for the most part on verse 17. And notice at the first of it. And he began to teach them and to say to them. Now I've often kind of thought that Jesus' teaching about the church being a house of prayer was more of something offhand. He cleansed the temple, he cleared it out, and then he was just sort of saying it to whoever happened to be there. But that's really not the picture. What it is, he gathers the people. It's more of an intentional teaching. This is something that he wants his disciples, his apostles to understand so that when he is gone and they lead the church, they can lead the church to be what he calls for the church to be here. And in this teaching about what he says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? We see there are at least from this passage, there are two things, two aspects of what Jesus intends for his church to be. First is a praying church. Right? He Wants his church to be a house of prayer. Now the idea of a church being a house of prayer has always been significant for me. 
when I first surrendered, really surrendered my life to Christ, praying I was top of the list of things I wanted to know how to do. Whatever else our church is, it must be a house of prayer. Now we talk about other things our church is. Our, our sign says we're a beacon of hope. We're, there's a, a slide in the slideshow that says we're a gospel mission. But even with those things, we, we must be a house of prayer. In fact, I would contend we cannot be a beacon of hope or a gospel mission without being a house of prayer. Prayer connects us to God and to connects us to His power. And without God and without His power, there, there is no hope. The hope isn't in the positive words that are spoken. The hope is in the power of God and what He has done for us in Christ. Apart from our connecting to God and to His power, our gospel witness will have no power. It will not be effective to reach the community, to reach the nations. So we must be a house of prayer. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a praying church? I think there are at least four characteristics of a praying church. One is prioritized prayer. A praying church makes prayer a priority. Prayer isn't an afterthought. It isn't something added in. It's a priority every single time they gather together. The book of Colossians exhorts us to devote ourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now, there are three parts to this commandment. The first is to devote ourselves to prayer, to pray and keep on praying. To have a strong determination to pray and keep on praying. We must have a, a, an attitude that says no matter what else I do, no matter what else we do, we're going to pray. Second, he says to be alert in prayer. Keep alert in prayer. Uh, alert is a, a military term used to describe what a soldier is supposed to be when he's on guard duty. Alert. Aware of their surroundings. Aware of the dangers, aware of what's going on. We too must be alert in our praying. Alert for the need of prayer. Alert for the spiritual dangers that lurk around us. Alert to the things that would distract us from keeping prayer a priority. Alert to the spiritual battles raging in our lives and the lives of those around us. And then lastly, we pray with thanksgiving, with an attitude of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving should always be a part of our prayers. We thank God for what He has done. We thank God for what He's promised to do. And we thank God for the things that we know He will do in response to our prayer. Now, something to keep in mind is that the book of Colossians is not written to an individual. It's written to a church. So the instruction to devote yourselves to prayer, keep alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, is not just for you and I as individuals, that's how we're to live, but it's how we as a church are supposed to be. We are supposed to devote ourselves to prayer, to be alert and to pray with thanksgiving when we pray. There must be prioritized prayer, but there must also be public prayer. If we as a church are going to prioritize prayer and devote ourselves to prayer, then we have to have public prayer. And what I mean by public prayer 
It's more than a prayer at the start of the service and a prayer at the end of the service to dismiss us. But there must be a time when as a church, what we do is we stop everything else we're doing. And united, we gather together and we cry out to God. We make prayer in that moment the focus of our service. Now we see this example frequently in the book of Acts. Acts 1 and 14. All of these were continually devoting themselves with one mind to prayer. Along with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is just after Jesus ascended into heaven. He ascends, the apostles go back to Jerusalem. They gather the church together and they pray. In Acts 2, they are still waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And they, they wait and they pray. In Acts 4, the apostles were threatened by the religious leaders. Told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. So they gather the church together, tell them about the threats, and they pray. And that's just what we see in the first few chapters of Acts. From the very beginning, the church of Jesus Christ has demonstrated the priority of prayer through public prayer, through stopping the service and having time where we together cry out to God. There must also be passionate prayer. One of my favorite passages on prayer has always been James 5, 16 through 18. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, there's a lot in that passage we won't have time to cover tonight. But I just want to point out two quick truths. I've underlined them in the text, as you can see. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. This is, I think, incredibly important. We often look at men like Elijah in God's Word and we think they're, they're like superheroes. Right? They, they have reached the, the sort of the next level kind of faith where they're not really like us at all. There's, there's regular people who are Christians like us. And then there's the super guys like Elijah. And yet we're told clearly he had a nature like ours. And, and, and what it means is just what it sounds like. Elijah was just like us. He struggled with his flaws. He struggled with his failures. He struggled with depression. He knew what it was to have great experiences where God did great things in response to his prayer. And yet he still was just like us with his doubts, his fears, his issues and his problems. That's a super encouraging thought for us. Secondly, it mentions that he prayed earnestly. The word for earnest is translated several ways in different Bible translations. But my favorite comes from a paraphrased Bible I sometimes read. And it says, tremendous power is released through passionate, heartfelt prayer of a godly believer. I love that picture of passionate, heartfelt prayer because it is what James is communicating to us. Now, passionate prayer, earnest prayer, it isn't necessarily loud praying, though it can be. 
passionate prayer, it, it's earnest, it's heartfelt, it's sincere. And that kind of praying, it can come from the person if they're a loud person. It can be loud praying. It can be the kind of praying that flows with great tears as the person prays. We had a lady at our church at Fort Gibson named Georgie Wisely. And Georgie was one of the most passionate, earnest prayers I had ever heard and prayed with in my life. And when she prayed, she prayed such soft and a gentle voice. She never raised it. She never got excited. But my gracious, you knew she knew Jesus when she prayed. That's passionate, earnest prayer. And this is the kind of praying that it must be when we pray together. There must be passion in our prayers. If you're a loud person, pray loudly. I'm okay with that. Anyone that's not needs to get right with Jesus. If you're a quiet prayer, pray quietly. There's no reason to have to fake and force something that's not there. If you're an emotional prayer and you cry when you pray passionately, by all means, cry when you pray. That is fine. But as we pray, there must be passion in our prayers. And then finally, there must be private prayer. A praying church will only be a praying church when it's filled with praying people. And we'll only be praying people when we pray privately. The only time we pray cannot be when we get together. It cannot be when we gather together and we stop our services and we have the moments and the times of prayer. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we're supposed to go into a room, shut the door, and have a time of prayer in secret. Our church, whatever our church is and whatever our church does, it's merely a reflection of who we as individual people are. So if we would be a praying church, it would only be because we as individuals are praying people. And so we must have a time of private prayer. So Jesus wants his church to be a, a praying church, but he also wants it to be an inclusive church. Jesus says the church is to be called a house of prayer for all nations. Now what Jesus, when he cleanses the temple, what he's cleansing the temple of is a shop that the money changers had set up. Now if you're familiar with the story, you, you know that what happened was... This is the during the time of the, the Day of Atonement when Jews from all over the world were supposed to come to Jerusalem for the, the one big day of celebration. And when they came to Jerusalem on this day, part of what they were supposed to do was they were to there was a temple tax that they were to pay and there was a sacrifice that they were supposed to make. But the, the temple tax couldn't be paid with just any kind of money. They couldn't pay it with Greek money. They couldn't pay it with Roman money. There was a particular kind of Jewish shekel that they had to use. Well, many Jews didn't live in Jerusalem, so they didn't have that kind of a money. So that when they came to town, they had to have a money exchange. Pay this much, get the shekel so they could pay it. When they came, they also had to bring a, a lamb or an offering for a sacrifice. But again, if you've read like Leviticus, the number of times it says without defect. Couldn't just be their junk. It had to be the best. It had to be without defect. And when you lived far away and you had to walk for several weeks to get there for the Day of Atonement, lots of things could happen to your sheep. And then when they went to bring it in to sacrifice it, 
It had to be inspected, and they would look at it to make sure there were no defects. It didn't limp. It didn't have a blind eye. There wasn't a spot or some sort of something wrong on it. So somebody at some point had the idea, and they said, hey, here's what we'll do. We'll set up one spot locally, centrally, where you don't have to bring your own animal. And you can come, and you come in, and you you buy your money, you change out your temple tax. If you need to make a dove, you can buy a dove. It's already pre-approved. It's it's perfect. You can buy the land. You can buy it here, and it's all pre-approved. And we're certain that you can get it and make the offering, and it'll be okay. Well, that sounds like a really good idea. But what happened was the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders they realized there's a way they could make money on this. So what they did was they charged not a really good rate on the exchange. They were kind of gouging the people. They, they charged a, a really high price for the animals that they sold. Not only did they do that, but they began, since they were the ones who made the examination to make sure the sacrifice could be given, if somebody brought their own, they kind of got to where they would be like, oh, I don't know, I think there's something wrong, you can't use that. And they were forcing people to buy it. And that was one problem. Another problem, what Jesus deals with in the house of prayer for all nations, is where they set up shop. Now, God had always intended for his house to have a place for God-fearers who weren't Jews to gather, to cry out to the God of Israel. Because Israel was supposed to live in such a way that their light would shine before the nations and all the nations would be drawn to the God of Israel. But if they weren't natural born Jews, they couldn't go into many parts of the temple. So what they would do is there was a place called the court of the Gentiles. And it was the only place Gentiles could go. And they would go into the court of Gentiles and they would lift up their hands and they would lift up their eyes. And they would offer prayer and offer praise to the God of Israel for his greatness and his glory and his goodness. And that's where they set up the shop. Now imagine, if you will... When we came to church tonight, this was all filled with all manner of animals making their noises, going to the bathroom, doing the things that animals do, as well as people buying, exchanging, and haggling, and arguing, and all the things that go on. How worshipful would our time there have been? Well, it wouldn't have been. And what they were doing was they did that in the court of the Gentiles because... They didn't like Gentiles. By setting up shop in the court of the Gentiles, they were preventing Gentile God-fearers from having a way to come and to meet with God. And they did that intentionally because they didn't care. As far as they were concerned, the Gentiles were little more than dogs. Now, dogs in their culture weren't man's best friend, so that was in no way a compliment. Dogs were scavengers and were mongrels and were nasty. And as far as most Gentile or most Jews were concerned, God could damn all the Gentiles to hell and they would be fine with that. And so they set up the court to exclude them. A good example of this mindset is the prophet Jonah. If you remember from the the story, why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Now, as a kid in children's church, I was taught Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid of the Ninevites. He fled because he was afraid they would kill him. And then one day, I grew up and I got to the book of Jonah and I read it myself 
And lo and behold, Jonah was not afraid of the Ninevites. Jonah was afraid of the God of Israel. It says in Jonah 4.2, Jonah knew God was gracious, merciful, abounded in loving kindness, and one who would relent from doing harm. Jonah fled and did not go to Nineveh because he was afraid God would forgive the Ninevites. And when the Ninevites repented, and when God forgave them and relented from doing harm and showed them mercy, it made Jonah angry. So angry, in fact, he said he would rather die than live in a world where the God of Israel would forgive the Ninevites. This is the sort of mindset that the religious leaders had when they set up shop in the court of Gentiles. They did not want a non-Jew to know God, to love God, or to serve God. But Jesus said God's desire was for His house to be diverse and inclusive of all people. This was always God's intent. All people, regardless of nationality or social class or culture or even religion and lifestyle, should be welcomed to God's house. Now, this is hugely important in a town where there are 30 plus languages spoken in our high school. Anyone in our community ought to be able to walk into our church and feel welcome, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their social status, regardless of their culture, regardless of their lifestyle, regardless of what religion they follow. A woman in a hijab should be just as welcomed in our church as a man with a MAGA hat. Is this who we are as a people? Is this who we are as a church? Is this who we want to be? Well, it ought to be because that is who God wants us to be. That is who Jesus wants us to be. So I want us to take time and take a few minutes for us to pray that we would be the kind of church Jesus wants us to be. An inclusive church and a praying church. Father, we love you tonight. You're great and you're awesome. You're wonderful and worthy. And Father, we want to be the kind of church you want us to be. We want to be a praying church. Father, guide us in this. Lord, we try to always have times where we stop and pray. But let us be sure that that is a priority in, in what we do every time. Father, help us to pray what you want us to pray and to pray in the ways that you want us to pray. 
But Lord, don't let us just be a group that prays when we're together. Lord, make us prayers as individuals. Draw us to times of prayer. Draw us to times where we can just get alone with you and have our hearts knit with your heart and be transformed through that time. We need you, Lord. This is a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. We need the living water that only you can provide. So draw us to you. Father, help us to be an inclusive church, a welcoming church. reading today, Lord, Luke 15, how the sinners gathered to Jesus where he was. Father, let our church be the kind of place where certainly we want the saints to come. Father, a place where sinners can come. And they can hear about you. and They can learn about you. And they can be given time to have their hearts warmed to Christ so that they could repent of their sins and believe in Him and be saved. Guide us in this, God. Work in our hearts what needs to be done. We ask in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen. Kelly has something. So, what I want to do now, I'm a big fan of prayer lists. I've liked them since the very first time I started trying to pray. Um, I came across something. I had never seen a prayer list like this. Uh, And so I came across something and began to to like it instantly. I like the way they keep me focused. I like the way they help me be specific uh, rather than be general. I I like the way they help me cover all my bases and pray for all the sort of things that there are to pray for. And so what I'm saying is I've got a prayer list for us, for the church. And as Kelly's handing it out, What we have in this is it's every day of the week broke down into specific prayer requests. Things that you can pray every day to be praying for our church. And as you pray for our church, you can pray for these very specific things uh, for yourself, for all of us as we gather together. We're not going to look at the whole list. Uh, We're just going to look at a few of the select things on each day just to be sure we can kind of tell. Notice on Sunday, the very first one is pray people would be aware of God's presence in our church. And with each of these, there's at least one Bible verse given. So if you want to look up the Bible verse to see the the basis of this prayer, you can do that. But in Exodus 33, Moses wants God to go with them into the promised land. And he said, "How, how will anybody know where your people if you're not there? And the number one thing we want people to experience and have an encounter with when they come here is God. I mean, I hope the sermon is good. I hope the music is good. I hope we as people are friendly. But more important than good music and friendly people and a good sermon is a genuine encounter with God. When people come in here, we want them to know there's something here that's not at Disneyland. There's something here... That's not anywhere else because God is here with his people. Pray God's word would work powerfully. People's lives. There is for whether we're 
A born-again disciple of Jesus, whether we're someone who's a prodigal that's fallen away, whether we're a lost person, whether we're something in between, God's Word always has something it's meant to do in our lives. There's always more that God is wanting to do in us and through us and for us, and His Word is the basis of that. And so we so pray that every time we gather, God's Word would work powerfully in people's lives. And then pray people would be, or lives would be radically transformed. Um, Again, this is for all people, whether it's a lost person getting saved, a, a backslider being restored, or a saint who is progressing in sanctification. There's always transformation. So pray for that. On, on Monday, pray to see the glory of God and the glory of His Christ as we read His Word. Right, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are... Constantly, as we behold the glory of Christ, we are being transformed into His image from glory to glory. And this happens, we behold Him through the Word. So as we pray that as we as individuals, as we read the Word on our own, that we would see the glory of Christ, the glory of God, and then would be transformed. Pray to behold wondrous things out of the Word. Pray to see Jesus. In all of God's word. The Bible is the story of Jesus. That's the whole story. Jesus is in every aspect and every part of God's word in one way or another. Jesus tells us that in John 5. Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy. And so pray to see how something maybe in the Old Testament reflects Jesus or talks about Jesus or, or typifies Jesus or points to Jesus. And then pray We would all embrace God's word as right, real and sufficient. Right. It's right in whatever it says. It's real. Right. It's not a pie in the sky ideal of how things could be, but it's the reality of how life is meant to be lived. Not only is meant to be lived, but can be lived. So if the Bible says something like we can be filled with all the fullness of God, that's real. That's a real thing that could really happen. In our lives in real time. That we would embrace that and long for that. And then that it's sufficient. So we live in a day where there are so many other things trying to add to God's word or take away from God's word. So much of the sort of the crazies who want to have these divine revelations that that are outside of God's word. And, And the reality is we don't need any of that. I mean, it's good to read books. It's fine to read books. But God's word is sufficient so that we can be thoroughly equipped to do anything God wants us to do. And that we wouldn't look for further revelation and we wouldn't need those other things, but we would seek and find in God's word what God wants us to do and be. On Tuesday, pray that we would be soul conscious. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. I've told the story many times. My favorite story is of my hero, D.L. Moody. He was an uneducated shoe salesman from Illinois. Yet he was a passionate evangelist, led many souls to Christ in his preaching and personal soul winning ministry. And some men went to him one day that were far more educated than him. And they said, Mr. Moody, why is your ministry so fruitful? And he took them to the window of his hotel and it looked over a park, a city park. And he said, what do you see there? 
And they said, you know, whatever it was people in the 1800s did at city parks and on a Saturday afternoon. And he said, what do you see, Mr. Moody? And he, with tears in his eyes, the story says, he said, souls, precious souls who will spend eternity in hell apart from Jesus. Pray that we would all see that because that's what surrounds us. Pray the Holy Spirit would shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. Now this, I want to emphasize this a minute because, again, that's Romans 5, 5. When the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love others as either as Jesus has loved us or as we love ourselves. And that's needed. Our, our day, our culture is not kind. Our culture is constantly telling us, you love these kinds of people, but you despise these kinds of people. That is certainly not God. Make no, make, make, make no, I don't know, I'm just rambling now. Don't have any questions about it. That's not God. God is never telling you to look on these people and despise them. God is telling you to love them as He loves them, as He has loved you. The reality is, we're people. And as people, we're naturally prejudiced in some ways or another. It may be in relation to people who look weird. It may be in relation to people who speak differently. It may be in relation to people who... Who just are different than us. But there's something that's just in all of us, part of our sinful nature, that makes us naturally not like maybe certain groups of people. But as disciples of Jesus, we aren't called to be natural in any way. We need God to transform our hearts so that we would love our neighbors and we would love the people in our community and we would love the people that we interact with. And when we love them as God loves them, then the next one, we would have an agonizing burden for the lost. I mean, if I love someone, my heart is going to ache at the thought of them living separated from Christ in this life and separated from Christ in the next life. We need God's love in our hearts so that we can agonize as we ought to. Then one more on, on, Wednesday, on Tuesday. Pray we would encounter a person of peace. A person of peace is a unique uh, teaching. Something that um, often is free will Baptist. We probably never talked about much. But a person of peace is a person that we encounter. And through our relationship with them, they open up gospel opportunities with a larger group of people. Right, so I have a friend in Bulgaria, who pastors in Schumann, and he goes to various villages and he prayer walks through the villages. And his goal is to meet a person of peace, someone who will is in that village. He doesn't know people in the village. And what they'll do is they'll open up opportunities for him to get to come and minister to that village. They'll open up opportunities for him to get to come and share the gospel in a school setting. He'll get to have uh, go to the village where often like the mayor has a really a whole lot of authority and they'll let him have a public gathering where he can talk to Jesus, talk to them about Jesus. In, in our community, there are all number of people that maybe we know this one person, but knowing them would give us an opportunity to talk to all of these other people, maybe their family or something like that about Jesus. So pray that we would encounter a person of peace. On Wednesday, I'm just going to mention one. Pray that we would rest in God's sovereignty. I mentioned this 
Because as you may or may not have noticed, we're about to head into another election cycle. Won't that be fun? And if there is one thing the talking heads on all the channels are going to do, it's going to be try to make us afraid. If if this person doesn't win, it's the end of the republic. The world will die. You will probably starve to death and there will be no clean air. You're just going to die badly. And if we're not confident and resting in the fact that our God reigns and our God rules, we will buy into their nonsense. And that is something we must not do. No matter what happens in this next election cycle, no matter who runs, no matter who wins, Daniel 4 is clear. Our God is the one who raises up one leader and takes down another. And we must rest in that sovereignty. Thursday, pray we would have a righteous influence on the world and a righteous testimony before the world. Righteous influence on the world, be salt. Everywhere we go, we ought to make that place better. We ought to influence the world for Christ everywhere we go. And then have a righteous testimony. Everywhere we go, we should live in such a way that people recognize us as followers of Christ. There should never be any question about that. Years ago, I was working at Walmart and I was talking to a guy and I invited him to church. And he said these words, which cut me to the heart. He said, you go to church? And I said, yeah. He said, I never would have guessed it by the way you talk and the way you act. He was a friend of mine. He wasn't cutting me down. He was just stating a fact. The reality was, I really wasn't. I mean, if somebody just looked at my life, there would have been nothing that said Jesus in that. So we, we have an obligation as disciples of Christ to reflect him well. In every sphere of life, in every arena we enter. And we want to pray that we do that well. On Friday, uh, pray our prodigals would turn back to Jesus. Our hearts ache for many prodigals within our church. Many who used to be, who grew up here and who are now far from Christ. Pray that God would draw them back. Pray every disciple would grow spiritually. Second Peter 3.18 Grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason we want to do that, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, talks about the strife and the division at Corinth was because they were immature believers. Now, immature doesn't mean they were new Christians. That's one thing. These were people who had been Christians a long time. But they hadn't grown. And so they were causing strife and division in the church. Now, in my experience, which isn't vast, 51 years of living, 21 years as a pastor, in my experience in church life, church division almost never happens over significant theological issues. I have never seen a free will Baptist church split over the inerrancy of Scripture or the resurrection of Christ. Free will Baptist churches split 
over whether or not we ought to have songs on the wall or whether or not we ought to sing out of the hymnal or which kind of hymnal we ought to sing out of or whether the pews ought to be padded or whether they're not. Those are insignificant, uneternal, ridiculous issues to fuss about. And at the core of all of those issues is always immature Christians. Children who say, it has to be my way. And anytime somebody is demanding their way, no matter what, be sure they are immature. Emotionally, spiritually. And the root of all of those kinds of problems always goes to those kinds of people. And our church has tremendous unity and has in my 21 years here. And I believe it's in part because we are not perfect, but strive to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for that unity to press on into the future, we must all continue to grow the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. On Friday, pray God would use our church or Saturday. I'm sorry. God would use our church to transform our community. We read Acts 19 tonight before the start of service. We looked at it Sunday in our service. But what God did through his, what Jesus did through his church in Ephesus, he can do through his church in Ghana. And so we want to pray that God would use our church in that way and pray God would use our church to plunder hell in order to populate heaven. Now, if we were to commit to praying for our church, specifically these specific things for at least 10 minutes a day, that's not a long time. What could God do? I mean, if prayer is really powerful, And if God really answers prayer, and if God really moves in response to prayer, what could happen? If we committed and said, I am going to pray these things for my church every single day. I don't know. There's only one way to find out. And that's for us to commit to pray for our church and pray for these things every single day. So let's take a few minutes right now. Pick some. uh, Pick the Wednesday ones because it's Wednesday. Pray a couple of those and then we'll move on with the service. Father, we love you today. Lord, we ask you to guide us as a people of prayer to pray, Lord, for our church. Father, we want our church to be your church, to do what you want us to do in our community. And Lord, we can't do this apart from you. We are wholly dependent upon you to do anything. 
Father, make us a people who are a people of prayer. God, help us to remember your power. Lord, for some in here today, we've been praying for our prodigals for so long. There's no turning. There's no changing. Gosh, in many cases, God, there's there's just progress away from you. But you are still the God who can do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all we could ask or imagine. Help us, Father, to remember that when we're discouraged. To remember that when we feel overwhelmed. To remember that when it looks like nothing's happening. Do turn our prodigals back to you, Lord. (laughs) Touch their hearts. Shine the light of the gospel in their eyes. Let them see the glory of Christ. Turn to you and be saved. You're greater than whatever strongholds they built in their minds. You're more powerful than anything that's drawing them away and deceiving them. Do it because you're good. Do it because you can. Do it because Jesus died for them. And Jesus loves them. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. One of the potential hindrances to any church, our church included, being all that Jesus intends for us to be, is an inferiority complex. This is common in American churches. It's especially common in smaller rural churches. Many times what we've bought into is is a lie that asserts that the church smaller church, a rural church like ours, is poor, pitiful, and powerless. This lie asserts that the church is just trying to mind its own business, but is mercilessly attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is all a a satanic lie. I say it's a satanic lie because Jesus affirms to us Satan is a liar and the father of lies who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy I say it's a lie because this is not how Jesus views His church. Just quickly review. I want to quickly review just a little bit of how Jesus views His church. Jesus started the church, Matthew 16 and 18. Jesus loves the church, Ephesians 5 and 25. Jesus works to make a glorious church, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. Jesus conquers through His church, Matthew 16 and 18. Jesus saves people through His church, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Jesus transforms communities through His church, Acts 19, 1 through 27. Do you believe those things are true? 
Do you believe Jesus does those things? Then do you believe these things could be true of our church? Do you believe Jesus could do these things through our church? Something we have to pray for. This is something we should believe. These are truths, promises given to us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to hand out prayer list now. We'll close in our prayer time. Melissa, do you want to give us an update on Joanna? Oh, she's doing much better. But like yesterday, she sounded back to her normal self, just tired down. But we need to pray for Laurie and Grant Brooks. Laurie's mom had a stroke today. So they're ahead of there to deal with that. Levine, uh, can you give us an update on Cora? Any other prayer requests?